This is an ABC podcast. I still think that he, he is probably the best player that I've ever seen live. And I have seen Pele play out. I saw Maradona, but for me, best still was the best player that I've seen live. He just, he was balletic in the way he ride tackles, you know, without losing balance. Every time the ball went near him, there was this air of expectancy that he would do something. You know, he had this aura about him, and uh, it was just amazing how he kept sort of coming back in, into my life. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. Welcome to Days Like These. We all had idols growing up. The poster on the wall of a teenage bedroom. Actors, pop stars, sporting heroes, of course. David Jack was a football-mad kid living in a football-mad Manchester in 1960s England. His idol was George Best, a flawed football genius who dazzled the world with his skill. Football was different back then. Pitches were more mud than grass. The ball was a sodden lump of stitched leather. Players didn't have shirt sponsors or endorsements. But then George Best comes along and he gives David a footballing idol. Reporter James Viver brings us a story of childhood heroes and playground dreams made real. I played football since the age of four or five and going to school there you couldn't avoid being a football fan or in those days a Manchester United fan. My whole life revolved around football actually. Well my great-grandfather was a Scotsman uh, and a footballer, played for Alloa Athletic up in Scotland, then moved down to play for Bolton Wanderers and Preston in Lancashire in England uh, in the late 1800s. And his son, David, played for Bolton Wanderers and Arsenal in the 1920s, played at Wembley in the first cup final, scored the first goal, and then went on to, to captain England as well. My father was a football writer, was a decent footballer, but not good enough to make a living in those days. So he became a journalist and started covering football from the early 1950s. My dad did have a sort of affiliation with United through Sir Matt Busby whose biography, My Story, he wrote in 1957-58. Matt Busby was very well respected and revered in, in football management. Here come Manchester United out onto the field. Then I started going to matches with my dad. He would just stick me under his overcoat and the person on the gate would say, who's this? And he'd say, oh, he's with me. And, and I'd sneak in and, and find a spot wherever I could. A capacity crowd for this home game at Old Trafford. 50,000 fans here at the ground they call the Theatre of Dreams. And the smell of tobacco and the smell of, you know, bovril uh, hot drinks at halftime, uh, it still sort of lingers to this day. I saw George play at Old Trafford in 1963. That was the first time I'd seen George Bless play football. And Best cuts inside, beats his man, shoots, and it's in! A beautiful shot from the edge of the box. Best scores his first for United. It was his second game for United and he scored his first goal and I was fortunate enough to be there. So it, it, it was almost an obsession. 
George Best was a gifted footballer, a natural genius once described as having feet like a pickpocket's hands. Speed over the first 10 or 20 metres, he was well balanced, he had wonderful ball control. Brazil's Pelé famously declared him the best player in the world. Well, I, I think I would describe it. I mean, he was the complete footballer. He was a great individual. I mean, he would end up, you know, at the end of beating four or five players, scoring a wonderful goal. In front of him, cuts back onto his left foot, puts it back on his right, beats the defender, knocks it into the back of the net. What a goal from George Best! He could head a ball, he could tackle, which a lot of attacking players don't spend much time tackling. So he was the complete all-round player. Best on the edge of the box, shoots. Oh, that's brilliant from Best! He played with flair, charisma, trendy hair and good looks. But as soon as he'd received the ball, suddenly there was, you know, probably 5,000 girls shrieking in, in the crowd. It's, it was a funny experience. Best was a heartthrob, a male model and a style icon. Obviously, in those days, it was the it was the swinging 60s in England, and Best had what they called a Beatle haircut. A marvellous finish from the boy with the Beatle haircut. I mean, you know, virtually everybody living in Manchester wanted to be George Best or anyone playing football. He started a fashion boutique in Manchester called Edwardia, which offered the big collars and floral prints of the swinging 60s. George Best started to sort of pioneer the designer stubble, you know, and I, as soon as I could start to shave, I'd let it grow a few days so I can look like George. George Best played with Europe's finest footballers by day and with chart-topping pop stars by night. His nickname was the Fifth Beatle. I just wanted to be like him. I'd be trying to imitate him. Best's fame made him an advertising machine, endorsing everything from sausages to aftershave. He made a lot of money, but what he made, he spent, usually in the pub. Best once said, I spent a lot of money on booze, birds and fast cars. The rest, I just squandered. That was, that was his, his personal life and it was all part and parcel of being the star as he was. In short, he was the sport's first global superstar. And David dreamed of playing with this footballing god. He played a similar position to me. I, I was a forward, I was played mainly on the wing and, and that's what we're best played when he first came into the team. You know, I would try to score goals like he would score, you know, like trying to lob a goalkeeper. And every time I'd see United and best play, either on television or live, I'd want to go out and play football. We played all the time at school, especially in Manchester, and we all wanted to be George Best. We'd have to ration out the George Best, so you could only have, you know, if you had him today, you couldn't be him tomorrow, but, you know, you might have to wait a week before you were George Best again. Before United would play an important game, they would quite often go to Blackpool to spend a few days preparing for the game, and they would always stay at a hotel called the Norbreck, which is on the, the beachfront at Blackpool. And I was able to go there and sit on the grass with, with other young fans and just watch them training, you know, like five or ten metres away, which you could never get near them these days to do that sort of thing. And, and yeah, George was there and all, all lovely people as well. 
David was playing football all the hours that God would send and loving it. David was deep into that teenage phase when famous people almost become a part of who you are. Until a spanner in the footballing works. Soon after we actually emigrated to Australia, it was a terrible shock for me because I thought, well, I'm going to Australia, but they don't play football there, do they? So, and I'd have to leave Manchester United behind and George Best behind. There wasn't a lot of coverage of English football, but I did used to subscribe to a football magazine in the UK called Shoot. 92,000 here at Wembley to see if Manchester United can be the first English club to win the European Cup. Can best work his magic for Busby's boys. We emigrated in March 1967. In 1968, uh, Manchester United won the European Cup. And ABC had radio coverage in the morning. It was on at about 6.30 of the European Cup final. And in that game, it went to extra time and United beat Benfica 4-1. Best is through. Round the keeper. He must. He does. Best puts United ahead in extra time. And Best scored a great goal just into extra time, which sort of put them on the road to victory. Even though he was on the other side of the planet, David wouldn't give up his dream of playing with George Best. And he actually had a better chance than most. The Jack family footballing genes had been passed on to David, and he was developing into a pretty decent player. Well, I'd been doing quite well out here, and uh, in 1970, I was 16, and I was picked to play for, for Manly. I, I'd played in the Manly Oringa rep teams from under-14s through to under-16s, and then got promoted to the, the first-grade team. I'd still be trying to lob the ball like George, you know, four or five times a game. Manly were in the top tiers of New South Wales football at the time, so David was playing at a high level, just in the wrong place. It would take the eye of a World Cup winner and Manchester United legend to pluck him from football obscurity. Bobby Charlton came out here and did a coaching tour and somebody said that I was a decent player and when he got back to, to England he mentioned this to, to Matt Busby and Matt got in touch with my dad and said we'll, we'll pay his, his fare if he wants to come for a trial and see how he goes. So I went back to England in... November 1970, with United. For a young footballer, this is about as big as it gets. David had been spotted by a legendary player in Bobby Charlton. He'd been recruited by an iconic manager in Sir Matt Busby. And above all, he was going to be at the same club as the greatest player in the world and his idol, Georgie Best. Even though David's dad knew Sir Matt Busby, having written his biography a decade before, a trial at Manchester United put David in the top 1% of players in the world. It, 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 was, it was amazing. I, I just sort of couldn't believe the fact that I was on the same pictures as my, my idol. I hope I don't give him a bad pass. I think, oh, yeah, I'll give him an easy pass. Here, yeah, George, have this and you do what you like with it. It was just incredible to think that I passed the ball to George and, oh, he nearly scored that time. Will he remember that, you know, in years to come? <laughs> I mean, I, I might have passed the ball to him in a game, but, yeah, at that time, I, I wasn't sort of brave enough to go and start chatting to him, you know. And while I was there, I bought a vest from George Best's boutique because I wanted to at least take something home that was relating to Best. 
It was the first one he'd opened up. It was just, it was just a shot, but it had the name Best. Yes, it was a mustardy colour. It was long, it was sleeveless, and it was a thing you'd wear in 1969 or 1970 when you'd go out. A long sleeve floral shirt under the, the vest. But they were, they were just popular at the time. I, I don't think I'd ever wear one now. And I wore it a couple of times, I didn't really like it, and I said to George at training, would you mind if I took it back? He said, no, just speak to so-and-so. And... Well, it's probably the excuse I needed. I probably, I probably didn't want to change it, I just wanted to chat personally to George. <laughs> I did get another top, which I kept for, I think, 15 years after that, because it was the George Best vest. I think it was about five pounds or something. That was almost my four weeks' wages, so it was, uh, yeah, quite extravagant. But it was a nice vest. They all loved him. The other players loved him. There was there was no jealousy. They knew what sort of a player he was, and he was a, a decent fellow and a and a, a modest guy. I just remember as a, a friendly person, somebody who was always willing to to have a chat. And yeah, if you did give him a bad pass, he wouldn't give you a bollocking. So it was okay. Uh, Sir Matt Busby did offer to keep me on for another twelve months. Um, but I, I was, you know, I got homesick. But I didn't really think that if I stuck at it and kept progressing that maybe in, in 12 months I could have been maybe playing at Old Trafford, you know, in, in the reserve team, or God help me, the first team. And now when I look back at it, I thought, I would have been terrified to go out there. You know, I know the fans can be a bit brutal at times. I think, God, could I, could I have actually gone out there and done a, done a job for Manchester United? Yeah, so I, I came back in, in February 1971. David returned to Australia having fulfilled a dream. Kind of. He'd met George, he'd even kicked a ball to him and dropped a few quid in his boutique. But he never played with him in a proper competitive game. David went on to university and then became a bank manager in Sydney. He still played football on the North Shore and tried the occasional lob over the keeper at the weekend. As for George Best... Well, Best became known more as a playboy than a player. When he left Manchester United after a series of disciplinary skirmishes. At the same time, David's life was ticking along nicely. George Best's life descended into booze-soaked chaos. columns, which charted his marriage problems, drinking and financial difficulties. Tabloid headlines, street fights, failed businesses, drunken TV appearances, a prison spell and even later on in life a liver transplant. As the years went by and the booze took hold, his ability and his bank balance slowly diminished. Sad prologue to his appearance today in the bankruptcy court. George started playing for a number of clubs that would pay him $5,000 for, for the appearance. Best started to make cameos for clubs all over the world, which led him to Australia. Yes, in 1983, we suddenly find out in, next week we're playing against D.Y. And somebody said, why are we playing D.Y.? Because they were in the second division. They said, because George Best is playing. And we thought, what? Twelve years after walking away from his trial at Manchester United and totally out of the blue, David would get one more chance to play with his hero. We were told that D.Y. were paying his wages for the night, $5,000, so... We understood why he was playing at Cranmer Park, but it was just—it was just exciting to think. Well, 
I will be on the same pitch playing against him and it'll be something to remember forever, really. You can't understate how unlikely this situation is. David was playing for a local amateur club, the kind your dad or brother might play for at the weekend. Cromer Park was just a, a tiny little suburban ground. It was our home ground as Manly. We thought it was a decent enough ground, but really there were just dressing rooms and a canteen. There was no clubhouse, which there is now. Not a very good playing surface. We had no covered seating. There was usually hot water, so that was a plus. And then I do remember the lighting wasn't very good. They had to bring in lights. There were no lights there. But George Best is easy to spot. He has a dark bushy beard and long hair. His crouched stance and poise on the ball are instantly recognisable. It's strange. I thought, you know, what is he doing here at Cromer Park? Manly are in a blue strip. D.Y. in white with a yellow and blue stripe. Best is the only one with a sponsor on his shirt, the airline that's been flying him around the world to play football. But it didn't, it didn't take away from the spectacle. People had come to see George play, I think about three and a half to 4,000 at Cromer Park, where we'd normally probably have less than 1,000 people if we were lucky. I was still slightly overwhelmed by the experience of being on the same pitch as him. And then, on a cold Thursday night in July, one of the greatest players ever to kick a ball is running out against you. And he, he still he still had the touches, and he still he was still very entertaining to watch. Certainly, the skills are still there. Just watch this. He he was still able to nutmeg players by pushing the ball through their legs and recovering the ball on the other side. And, and all these tricks were still there, even at the age of 37. Just after three minutes, though, the crowd saw their first touch of George Best magic. George had the ball, oh, it must have been 30 metres out. From 40 yards, he shot bumps against the goalpost. And we thought, well, you know, he's still got it. In the second half, George again hit the bar. In a tight situation in the penalty box, after hitting the post earlier, this time George wraps the crossbar. Yeah, but even so, we, we, we were the better side, I must say. Uh, we, we scored a couple of goals in the first half. Georgie Best tried all his old tricks to inspire D.Y. now training by two goals to one. Ten minutes to go and George hadn't scored and he, he flicked the ball over our goalkeeper, Mark Dower. And Suspicions there of offside, but there's the Georgie Best magic around keeper Mark Dower. Stuck it into the net. Into an empty net. The crowd enjoyed it. They, they loved it. They'd come to see George score. And he, he, was, he was clearly offside. We'd have to say now, many, many years later, that, yes, George, you were about five metres offside. But the referee wasn't going to blow the whistle. You know, this, people had come to watch George and nobody really cared that he was so clearly offside. This is the scoreline of Manly 3, DY 2. And I don't think even VAR would have pulled it up. They would have let it go. In sympathy for George. After the game, we had a cup of tea and I think we might have had a beer as well. George was there outside the canteen, just standing around, uh, chatting to people. 
And I had a, had a brief chat to them and I said, well played, George. But I didn't say, you know, I was at United in 1970. Do you remember me? He might have, he might not have. So I didn't, I didn't, you know, if he'd said, no, I don't remember you, I'd think, well, you know, <laughs> I might just run away and hide. So, uh, no, I didn't ask him. I still felt privileged to be on the same pitch as George and it'll be something I always remember. Didn't think to bring up the vest? No, I didn't. I, I, and I wonder, you know, he probably wouldn't remember. I think a lot had happened between 1970 and 1983. But no, I didn't mention the vest. Maybe I should have. And it, it took me back to, to the days when I had my trial at Old Trafford and the experience of, of you know, going to football matches with my dad. I saw George score that first goal of his for Manchester United December 1963. But 1983, I think it was coming to the end of when he was playing relatively serious matches. And in the game against us, it could well have been the last goal he ever scored in a competitive football match. So that's something, I think. David still plays football with Manly Moringa today in the over 45s team and is still a passionate supporter of Manchester United. Today's story was reported by James Viber. Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. If you've got a story to share with us and we love to hear them, you can send us an email dayslikethese at abc.net.au. And if you haven't already, follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or wherever you listen so that you never miss an episode. While you're there, if you can, leave us a rating and a review. It helps new people find the show and we love to know what you think. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Kulas. This episode was made on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Gadigal people. Our producer is Tamar Cranswick. Sound design and engineering on this episode by Isabella Tropiano. The supervising producer was Tom Wright. Our script editor is Sophie Townsend. Our executive producers are Ian Walker and Tom Wright. Our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. See you next time.
on the next episode of Days Like These. After a long week reading manuscripts, publishers Kevin Pearson and Gail Hanna stop for a quick walk along the beach. The sky was blue. Just had a few little bits. Yeah, it's a blue sky. Clouds, little tiny clouds. So, you know, you just think, oh, we're fine. But Mother Nature had other ideas. And when the weather changes, so does the course of their lives. It was your traditional crack. (laughs) I got struck. I actually saw the bolt coming towards me. I thought, you know, someone's got me with a bazooka. I didn't think I had that many people I'd rejected. (laughs) That's coming up next week on Days Like These.